Hi, and welcome to Edge with Dr. Stephen Brown. This podcast series focuses on the story, the personal narrative of Australians who have pushed at the edge. They have been pioneers who are doing amazing things that are a little bit different to the everyday. Sometimes their stories are told and well celebrated, and sometimes these stories are reasonably well hidden. Dr. Stephen Brown is a highly regarded leader in the education sector, both in Australia and internationally. He is the Managing Director of the Brown Collective and has a strong interest in people and getting to know their stories. He has developed this podcast series to introduce you to some of Australia's finest citizens. Welcome everybody to the latest episode of Edge. It's my pleasure today to welcome somebody who worked for Leviathans of Industry, Sir Peter Abels, uh, Rupert Murdoch. Uh, remember that airline called Ansett or Chancet with Ansett? Somebody who's had a stellar, uh, one would say from parochial sense, a Queenslander, an iconic rugby career. 100 games to Queensland, exactly 1,000 points, 31 tests for the Wallabies. And somebody I greatly admire who's transisted uh, from a high-profile rugby career to an equally uh, quite stellar business career, Um, a grounded reality sales manager with Ansett in in the plane crash of 1989. But somebody's gone on to uh, head up industry, international companies and uh, their various iterations. So... It is uh, with my great pleasure that I introduce you to uh, one of Australia's uh, finest uh, who holds an MBE, Paul McLean. Welcome, Paul. Thanks very much, Stephen. So that's how um, the going through your bios and doing the research and um, just my interactions with you and just my observations, you come across a very humble uh, person. How would you describe the Paul McLean that uh, is you? I mean, they're all the things that uh, are public, I suppose. Dig, dig a bit further below the surface. It's a, it's a kid of the 50s and 60s who grew up in Ipswich, enjoying life with a happy family around him and uh, and good friends and, uh, and schoolmates that um, still have... You know, regular interaction and family that still have regular interaction. So I've had a fortunate, uh, fortunate life up to this point in time. And all the things that you mentioned are, are just consequences, I suppose, of that development along the way and getting, uh, as they say, the bounce of the ball. Because um, I don't think we're all, you know, I don't think in my vintage we were all that strategic in the way we planned our lives. Uh, our kids seem to do it a lot better and with more um, precision today. They want to do this and they'd like to do that and to do that they're going to need to do this, etc. Whereas I think if you're a, um, a baby boomer and uh, were educated through the 60s and 70s, I think life was a bit more uh, laissez-faire and things, things happened and you rolled with the punches and got on with it. And I think my background growing up where I did was um, was a very positive thing for me uh, as time went by. Don't take yourself too seriously. You're not as good as you think you are, all that sort of stuff. So take me back to Ipswich, um, St Edmunds, 
on to Nudgee College. What are the, the values that you sort of infer there that you hold true to today? They, because a lot of our values are formed when, obviously, with our family and growing up, mum and dad, what are the things that are still core to Paul McLean today? Yeah, I, I think um, I think family gave opportunity and you know, my parents weren't, uh, weren't well off. They worked hard. Um, they provided a good education for, uh, for the, the six kids. And um, I, I think we didn't understand sort of some of the financial pressures that they were placed under until much later on. If it was discussed, it was, wasn't discussed within earshot, put it that way. And so we, uh, we lived this, um, this uh, maturing sort of uh, childhood a bit oblivious to um, what the, I suppose the, some of the realities were. Uh, having said that, I think uh, interaction with uh, with your friends was really critical, and ninety percent of our life was spent outdoors. It was boredom to be inside, basically. I mean, you only came in when it was too too dark not to see the cricket ball, or you'd lost the football, or similar. I think that was a real, real big plus for us. And I think uh, also, I mean, as I went on and had, was fortunate enough to sort of do a few things on the sporting field, it didn't change one thing in terms of my relationship with all those those boys and girls that I went to, went to school with. I mean, it was treated as, oh, well done, let's, let's move on. Let's talk about some other stuff. Um, so... There was always a, uh, a level of, um, it wasn't forced, but, I mean, it was just a matter of fact. And therefore, you took that on board when you're exposed to other people and uh, you, you needed to be well-grounded, as you pointed out, and your feet on the ground and you need to be humble because um, you were just one of the lucky ones. Yeah, you come across as somebody who's uh, got deep humility, and uh, but equally somebody who's uh, extremely high performer on, on any count, um, any measure. I can remember as a kid watching you at Ballymore and uh, taking a, a kick under enormous pressure, and I was thinking to myself, how does this guy maintain that concentration and uh, shut everything out? And then, then I watch you... With Israel Folau as an ARU director and with Raylene Castle and piloting the organisation with the board through, again, different contexts but trying times, pardon the pun, but equally showed up in both those situations. You might say you're paddling madly underwater but outwardly this calm, measured exterior and... Uh, any insights? I'm not sure where all that came from, uh, but, I mean, I know certainly from an early age that some things can be coached and some things can't be coached. And I think from a very early age I had an understanding of, certainly from a sporting perspective, how things should unfold. Like I was able to visualise um, situations in games from when I was a youngster. I didn't realise that till later on. I thought everyone could see what was going on, but and I'm not sure where where all that came from. I think the other thing that was just from a, a sporting perspective. The other, um, I think, important thing that I've uh, been able to use as time's gone by is 
um, putting it bluntly, like it's, it's how to read the room, understand what's going on around you. And, uh, and I think that's a product of growing up in a pub. For my first 17 years, or except one year when the pub was being rebuilt, uh, our family lived in a pub in Ipswich. And in those days, as, as you would recall, through the, the late 50s and 60s, um, the, the local pubs were the places where people met and you engage with all sorts of people, your, your, your family, friends, your, your um, older men and various influences. And you saw things that happened then that won't happen today. It wasn't quite the Wild West, but there's a few things out there that are happening in those days. <laughs> and yeah. it happened. And you actually get to read people. Um, so I think I was a product of, of that. And you could read situations better than anyone. I mean, I was, I was with a colleague of mine not so long ago, um, half a dozen years ago, was sitting in a very nice hotel in, in Sydney in the beer garden at the Oaks Hotel in Neutral Bay. And it was a crowded afternoon. And he was from a family uh, pub background as well. And I said, there's going to be trouble here. And he said, yeah, I, I can sense it as well. And I said, those two blokes over there, I, that's where it's going to be. Anyway, sure enough, five minutes later, there's wow. an application and the you know, security come and sort of hurl them out. So when you say, you know, I'm not sure how, um, they say <clears throat> everyone's born up, grown up in the village and everyone has an input into that, the makeup of that person. So I think those sorts of things uh, were subconsciously instilled in me and I picked them up and sort of remembered those things and whatnot. And then if you fast forward that into business, I've always had the approach. I mean, collaboration was, was critical. Working with people, trying to develop them was critical. But then having uh, enough strength to know when you had to make a, a tough decision and there wasn't any other way out but to make, a, make one of those hard decisions. So, again, I'm, I'm very uh, grateful for my upbringing in, um, in both Ipswich and in, in, in our pub. Yeah, I mean, such um, complementarity between uh, playing elite-level sport and early age, reading a game. And when I'm working with leaders, uh, similarly, uh, saying, if you can't read the room, you can't lead the room. So in terms of that sense of people that uh, honed by a pub life um, certainly has held you in good stead. And you see that as uh, I watch you interact with different people, you've got a real strong sense of um, uh, getting with or connecting with people. And uh, that's a true art and a skill. I had a good expression the other day and I, <laughs> it was exactly what we're talking about, but it described it a different way. That you can lead people down the street, but... You need to be able to lead them around the corner. <laughs> and um, that's what we try and do. And that's just another way to describe I think, what, um, what responsibilities you give it in that regard. So, uh, and I've, I found that both from a sporting perspective and in a business perspective, that you had a responsibility to, to do your best to, you know, to lead, to lead the people. So, Paul, take us um, through some of these, the formative years of what a wonderful upbringing with yeah, your wonderful family, Ipswich, et cetera. It, it's a hard question, I know, but is this something uh, demonstrably you could say this is an incident or this was a critical influence 
that gave me so much in terms of my own further formation. I know your formation with your family and the early years of Ipswich have stayed with you right through the day. Was there a, a particular issue? Was it the castle issue? Was it a flower issue? Was it answered collapse? What what was something that really was hard but it actually gave you a lot of learning? None of my family had been to grade 12. Neither my parents and my both my older brothers were tradesmen, one electrician, one a printer by trade. Um, so when I came along and I had a sister in uh, who was older than me and she left school at grade 10 and did a secretarial course, et cetera, et cetera. So, and they all did quite well. I went to grade 12 in Ipswich without much guidance and um, I suppose there wasn't a focus on um, my study at that stage. So I, I did grade 12 and, and didn't matriculate and then my parents thought um, this thought might have been a wasted opportunity because I think they thought, well, uh, he should be doing better than this for whatever reason. Long story short, in the Christmas holidays of that year, we had a little house down the coast and uh, down the Gold Coast and um, uh, my mum was about two weeks before school was to start and I wasn't too sure what I was going to be doing. In the January, she said, well, um, we've decided to send you to boarding school. I said, oh, that's good. Anywhere in particular. I said, yeah, no, we, you're going to go to Nudgee College. I said, oh, okay. So that was a bit of a uh, surprise because I saw, uh, and I was obviously a bit terrified because I saw a huge gap between St Edmunds and Ipswich, this little old Ipswich up there, and then Nudgee College, which I'd only heard about, and I'd actually seen uh, Nudgee uh, rugby teams play at Ipswich Grammar School because it was a big social event. And then, you know, during GBS Athletics, used to be televised on television in those days, and you see all these guys with a big N on their, on their shirts just excelling beyond belief. And I thought, well, I'm not so sure I'm going to fit in here. So, but anyway, uh, that, that happened. Um, so, I went to, to Nudgee two weeks later and it was straight, straight into the cricket season and I started to meet people straight away, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the most important thing that happened to me was I was thrown into a, a class of young men who um, were uh, academically ferocious. <laughs> um, the only way to describe it. Uh, no limits on study time, et cetera, et cetera, and they they worked really hard and it opened my eyes to what could be done with hard work, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and I got, I, I thought, well, I'm here, I, I need to do a bit of this. So I got dragged along um, with, with those guys. I mean, I, our, our dorm was out in alphabetical order in those days, so I had a, a guy on, my, on one side called James McEwen who was the ducks of the school who then became a thoracic surgeon. And then on the other side is a guy called Duncan McMeekin, uh, who did law, became a barrister and, and, and since a, a, a Supreme Court judge. Not to, be men- not to be messed with either of those guys, huge, huge brains. So um, d- despite my, my, all my failings and whatnot, I, I tried to keep up. So that was, a, that was an eye-opener to me. So I was able to, to do all the sporting things like cricket and rugby and a bit of athletics and whatnot, but at the same time, just power into the into the books. So at the end of the year, I mean, I got a 
I got a Commonwealth, Commonwealth scholarship and I got a, you know, state government scholarship and da da da, da. So that was a one defining moment for me that, you know, with a bit of hard work you can actually do a few things. Um, and then I suppose the second thing was the rugby piece. I think I had one game of rugby um, before I went to Nudgee College because I played rugby league up until I was, you know, until I left Ipswich. Um, and then um, being thrown into this uh, this environment where rugby was this, this anyone that played rugby uh, and played rugby at Nudgee, you, you were, uh, and you made, if you happened to make the first 15, it was the next big ticket along the way. I mean, you, you made it sort of thing. So I got obviously involved in, in uh, both cricket and, uh, and, and rugby. Well, the power of education and the power of opportunity and uh, certainly yeah, maximise that. And uh, it's just want to, uh, some of your story, as we said, is well told and it's well documented, but it's one that intrigues me and something I've grown to know a little bit further about you, Paul, is um, obviously your community uh, contribution um, beyond self and unselfless in some respects. One of your... Um, roles as a chair of Young Care. How did you find yourself um, working or contributing into uh, the space of Young Care and uh, take us into that world and why you're the chair at the moment? Stephen, I think um, one of the things that came out of my upbringing in Ipswich and our family was, and I saw my father do it in his own way um, because he was the publican, I saw people who... um, sometimes didn't have enough money to do things and or they needed something done around the place and he'd be able to coordinate that with someone else that he knew, et cetera, and was connected and da-da-da-da. And then my mother as well, you know, around the school and the community and whatnot. And then I, mean, I saw saw those things and understood them later in life, a bit later in life, uh, that they were generous people with their time and, and all of my family were vaccinated with that uh, with that piece, I think. So I think we're forever grateful that um, uh, that uh, the volunteering or doing things because it's a good thing um, was uh, was important for us. And that probably comes out of our out of our Catholic faith as well. So I mean, we're giving and sharing and helping helping other people was um, uh, all the things we were taught and, and did. So to the Young Care piece, uh, Young Care was established in 2006. You can read the history uh, as to how it, how it was set up um, uh, on our website and whatnot, but it was basically uh, an organisation set up because a particular person, a young lady, had no alternative uh, in terms of being accommodated uh, because she had a very severe MS uh, and the only alternative was for her to go into aged care. So it was inappropriate accommodation for someone with high care needs. And that, that was the mission then, um, to establish something that supported these people, and that's our mission today. It's clear, focused and, uh, and simple. I was in Sydney uh, in the late uh, 2009 and uh, I was approached by uh, David Conroy, 
whose wife was the catalyst for the start of Young Care. Uh, and David was wanting to set up an advisory group in Sydney uh, to tell a story there. And there's a few business people around the place that he pulled in. And uh, I didn't know David at the time, but I knew his brother uh, quite well. And he asked me to join this group. And I said, that's, that's fine. I mean, I, I know about Young Care. I'm happy to do what I can. Anyway, fast forward that year, when my wife and I are in the Hunter Valley with two longtime friends of ours, Peter Carson and his wife, and, and Peter and I had been on Wallaby tours together. And as it turned out, our kids were born at the same time and we holidayed together when they were younger, etc. cetera. We'd, we'd gone to bed. It was quite an early night. It was 10 o'clock or something. We get a bang on the door and it's, it's Prue Carson on the door. She said, come quickly, come quickly. I said, what's happened? She said, Sam's had an accident. Sam was their 26-year-old son. So I go down uh, to their apartment to find Peter on the bed with his phone, mobile phone on speaker, and he's talking to the paramedic. Sam had fallen off a three-level residential um, block, um, landed on his his head. Uh, It was a fancy dress occasion. He had a helmet on. He was still alive, uh, but... The words will ring in my ear for as long as the paramedic said um, to Pete, he might not get through this. So uh, with that, they jumped in the car and drove to Sydney. I offered to drive. They said, no, we'll do it by ourselves. So that was it. They disappeared. Sam is now 37. He's got an acquired brain injury. He's still alive. He's uh, he's healthy, but he uh, he had nowhere to go when uh, when he was when he was released from Royal North Shore. Uh, he went to a ride rehab, and then uh, where does he go after that? So, in in the year that followed, uh, my wife um, Kate and Prue searched and searched around Sydney to find a place where he could be accommodated, and uh, there was just no end. Um, every day they come back and they say, Sam's not going there, he's not going there. So <clears throat> that reinforced the um, <clears throat> the young care story for me uh, because that was exactly what, exactly the type of person that we were looking to assist. So I came back from Sydney in 2013 and then David asked me to join the board here, uh, which I did. Uh, in Brisbane and then uh, so I've been on the board since then and then three years ago um, the chairman stood down and uh, when I retired from full-time work I took over as the chair of Young Care and that work that we're doing will continue. Um, we did, the boys built their first project in 2006 uh, and on the books this year we have between 30 and 50 new projects which will provide appropriate accommodation for people with high care needs Um, and that's a huge huge increase from where we were three years ago Uh, NDIS has been um, has been very good uh, but like most of these types of initiatives we had the same with the NBN Uh, all this money was thrown out there without a cost benefit analysis being done and uh, we, we've had to walk through um, a myriad of um, gates, as have the people running the NDIS, uh, because it was new to them as well. So we've worked very closely with them and the government 
uh, as advocates and, uh, you know, we're finally, finally getting the ways being paved sort of um, more clearly to get things done more quickly. It's a very powerful narrative, Paul, and um, links a lot of our earlier conversation in terms of those formative days, what's important from your parents and community and giving, the Catholic faith, etc. So what a great, great story. If you were to get that message to the community broadly, and we still uh, have got a while to go to be much more inclusive as society, um, from a disabilities perspective and young part of the debate, what's a key issue that uh, needs to be tackled further or is emerging? You, you know better than anyone, things don't change overnight in, in the health sector uh, and, uh, and sometimes there are some dry runs before we get it right. And I think there was a slow process with, with the NDIS and, uh, and the support of, of the disability sector. Um, we think that's got immeasurably better over the last couple of years and we will continue to do that. Uh, our, our job is not only to, to develop those um, that, that accommodation for those those people, but it's also to, to be in front of uh, the key decision makers to ensure that it doesn't fall off the radar. And we've been able to use um, you know, key people around the country to ensure that that message um, doesn't doesn't get lost um, without bragging too much when the Prime Minister elect um, the Prime Minister at his first press conference. He had that press conference at Young Care's facility in Woolwin. And, uh, and to his great credit, without in the middle of the pandemic, uh, uh, when we opened Woolwin Stage 2 in uh, October of last year, uh, the residents in Woolwin Stage 2 received a, um, a video message from the Prime Minister. So we, we need to continue to share the message. Uh, and um, it's not just about the people with the disability. It's the number of people, and again, you know this better than most, it's the number of other people that are affected by that disability. The parents of those those people uh, who have had to manage and accommodate and look after and be the carer for so long because they didn't have an appropriate place to, to, to accommodate them. But now I've got this, we, we see the sense of relief in their faces uh, when, when they come and, and uh, are accommodated in one of our, of our developments. So... But there are there are challenges around that as well. I mean, in terms of, we're very conscious that you, you, you can't do this in a. Uh, it's not a cookie cutter approach. You can't just go and build forty apartments and put forty people in there because it just it won't work. It's a disaster. You you need to manage the people. You need and most of the time that our people spend are coordinating the personalities of the people so that they can live in an environment which is beneficial to all. Um, and, that's, uh, and, that's, and that's a challenge. So it's a, it can be a slow process, but we're, we're certainly gaining momentum. such a wonderful commitment, Paul, in terms of um, how you bring reading the play and reading people. 
those things that yeah, that are fundamental to you and uh, your contribution to others, your generosity of spirit. In the final couple of questions for uh, the Edge podcast, what gives you purpose and related to that, Paul? What's next for Paul McLean? What do you want to achieve next? Um, because you're making such a contribution and it's a lifetime contribution. What's the next chapter? I think one of the things, Stephen, you need to, um, for every one of me, there's there's another 50 out there doing the same thing or 100. There are people out there doing this type of thing every day and volunteering their time and effort and energies and uh, and might not get the same sort of recognition or uh, exposure. Um, so to those people, we need to be aware that uh, there's this, this band of volunteers out there and uh, people who, who do this uh, this wonderful work in so many different areas uh, without recognition. However, uh, that's one thing. The second thing is people need to understand that um, how the world is connected. That means connected to you know, the corporate world. It's, 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 it, that's going to help you in everything you do. It's going to you need to remain connected with governments uh, of all persuasions because that's just the way the world is. I mean, we, we live in a Western community that um, uh, life generally is pretty good when you compare it with other parts of the world. Uh, and that's the way things operate. I mean, and, and, and corporates and, uh, and philanthropists around, uh, around Australia have become more generous in this space than, than ever before uh, because they, they understand that government can't do everything and uh, they, they need to play their part in that as well. So you take your hat off to, to those, um, those participants who, uh, who support uh, causes like, uh, like young care and whatever. So from my perspective, I mean, I, my, I mean, my kids see what I do, I think, and uh, they see what colleagues of mine do and have done. Um, and you only hope, and I know they do, because uh, my kids um, made commitments in this space already, but uh, and their colleagues make them aware because they're the next generation. They're the ones that are going to need to carry the ball up and fill the shoes of people like you and I. And I think the schools, to a large degree, have been very good at that in supporting and educating our our kids to recognise how how lucky a lot of them are and that uh, not everyone's um, gets to have three meals a day and with a solid roof over their over their heads every day. And uh, I think if governments did anything, I think we can be more proactive in our school systems to make people aware of that. Paul, uh, we will catch up uh, at some stage and uh, further these threads of conversation, but... Uh, what a deep dive into Paul McLean in terms of the public uh, outstanding contributor and uh, achiever. But the strength and humility and the commitment to values, the giving to others and a sense of um, understanding and generosity of spirit is uh, profound. Paul, um, you talked about your mum and dad being role models, I think, and you embody that and passing it on to as we should to the next generation and uh, being aware that we are lucky people and um, 
how can we contribute to others? And all I can say is those two powerful words in the English language, thank you. Thank you, Paul, for what you do uh, for others and the generosity of spirit and thank you for participating today in Edge and um, I hope that people listening to this story will be, I know they'll inspired, inspired to contribute. Thanks, Stephen. Thank you for joining us today. You can follow Dr. Stephen Brown on LinkedIn and Twitter on at Dr. Stephen Brown One. Please join us next time for another episode of EDGE.